0: Welcome to Modern Food Thinking. This is your host, Chef Jerome Pica, along with co-host Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong. This show is brought to you by Spazio Rosso Interior Design, and here we present to you our unique perspectives on food as it relates to health and wellness. In this episode, we tackle sodium, the salty truth about tasty health. And as you might have guessed, we will in fact be talking about salt as it pertains to our food and health. To our listening audience, I remind you that we are not offering medical advice or advocating a particular manner of medical treatment. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes to your health care and understand the science behind your treatments. We are, again, just two professionals having a nice little chat about the salty side of sodium. Rachel, I thought I might start off with a bit of science regarding salt and sodium. And to clarify, not all salt is sodium, but all sodium is a part of salt. Salt, as our listeners understand it and what I am describing, is the white granular product we add to food. Generally, we use it to make food taste better, and sometimes we use it to preserve food. So this type of salt is made up of two mineral compounds, sodium and chloride, in a 40-60% ratio, and it is the sodium that is most harmful to your health. Chloride is what gives food that salty taste. People don't often realize that sodium occurs naturally in unprocessed foods such as milk, beef, celery, artichokes, beets, nuts, and whole grains. The amounts are generally small and they produce no significant negative effects to our health if we're eating a balanced diet. And Sodium is essential to cell function, maintenance of blood volume and pressure, as well as osmotic equilibrium and pH balance. Sodium is also an electrolyte and plays an important part in neuron function and osmoregulation between cells and extracellular fluid, what is sometimes known as bound or free water. Osmotic regulation sounds like a complicated term, but is basically the balance between the pressure of two liquids separated by a thin membrane wall. In other words, I'm talking about blood pressure, and the membrane walls I'm talking about are comprised of joined cells that create blood vessels in arteries. In human cells, there's a constant exchange of sodium atoms and potassium atoms. It's actually called the sodium-potassium pump. And this exchange is important because of the electrical charge that is created. As soon as the charge dissipates, it allows for nerve impulses to travel. So a defibrillator, for example, achieves a similar exchange, but on a much larger scale, which is why they're used in the event of cardiac rest situations. So now that we know what salt is and a little bit about the function it plays in the human body, maybe we can dive into the health risks associated with excess sodium consumption.
1: Salt, yes. This is a part of people's health. I feel like is often overlooked until something goes wrong, like high blood pressure or a stroke. I have some facts from the World Health Organization I'd love to share with our listeners. So number one, it's not just sodium we have to think about. It's the balance between sodium and potassium. High sodium consumption, which they define as more than two grams per day, and insufficient potassium intake, less than three and a half grams a day, contribute to high blood pressure and increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. Number two. The main source of sodium in our diet is salt, although it can come from sodium glutamate, uh, which is a condiment used in many parts of the world. And number three, most people consume too much salt, on average 9 to 12 grams per day or around twice the recommended maximum level of intake. And last point here, salt intake of less than 5 grams per day for adults helps to reduce blood pressure and risk of cardiovascular disease like stroke and coronary heart attack. The principal benefit of lowering salt intake is a corresponding reduction in high blood pressure. Like we discussed on our episode about sugar, there are also sneaky names for salt. So I am going to attempt to share some of these names here and we'll see how many times Jerome has to stop me and correct my pronunciation.
0: Rachel, you go right ahead, and and I, I'm. They're not easy to pronounce, so give it your best shot.
1: All right, disodium guanidate. Perfect. Di- All right, got one. Uh, disodium onosinate Mono. Okay, I was close. Um, monosodium glutamate, which is MSG, which I think is a, a very common, uh, kind of buzzword people talk about, uh, sodium bicarbonate, sodium nitrate, sodium citrate, sodium chloride, sodium diacetate, sodium glutamate, sodium lactate, sodium lauryl sulfate, sodium metabisulfate, sodium phosphate, trisodium phosphate. Uh, All right, now I'll catch my breath. So I got a few more interesting uh, numbers here for our listeners before I turn it back to you, Jerome. And these recommendations are from the CDC. You'll notice here that they are uh, encouraging numbers even lower than the World Health Organization. The 2015-2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommend that Americans consume less than 2.3 grams of sodium each day as part of a healthy eating pattern. About 90% of Americans two years old and older consume too much sodium. And the last point here is, um, or from the CDC, is the average sodium intake daily for Americans two years of age or older is more than 3.4 grams. So those are a lot of numbers, and I just have one more point I want to make here, and it comes from some research done by Rob Wolf, and he argues that extremely low or extremely high sodium consumption is problematic. A 2011 study published in the Journal of American Medical Association looked at sodium intake and cardiovascular events such as stroke and heart attack, and it paints an interesting and quite different picture. The likelihood of health problems was quite high in individuals consuming less than 2 grams of sodium per day. The lowest rate of events was at about 5 grams per day of sodium intake. This is more than double what is recommended by a handful of different organizations that we tend to listen to. And what is particularly interesting is the study's authors noted that one must get as high as 8 grams of sodium per day to see the same degree of problems as below 2 grams per day of intake. My point here is that there's still a lot unknown about sodium consumption, and more and more research is coming out.
0: Yeah, Rachel, I think your, your points uh, about the AMA 2011 Journal uh, article is a very good one, as well as the research by Rob Wolf and the wide degree of recommended sodium intake. Uh, it's a pretty big swing, but it does go to show that sodium intake plays a significant role in our overall health. And also, you did very well on the pronunciations, so congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Yeah, Your po- your point's also about the various names used for sodium chemicals. uh is pretty eye opening. That was quite a tongue twister. I realize, uh, but it is great information. Uh, one thing I did want to mention in uh, in reference to uh, MSG, the monosodium glutamate, is that it can be found naturally and and does occur naturally in, in certain fruits, eggplants, for example, tomatoes, spinach is quite a variety uh, that you can find it naturally. But the real risk is not in consuming it from natural plant foods. It's the additional added MSG to products like soy sauce and prepared foods and, uh, and a whole list of, of things like, like that. But uh, I do want to point out to our listeners the subtle differences in verbiage that uh, you mentioned, Rachel. Uh, sulfite versus disulfite versus trisulfite. So what are we looking at are chemically different properties, and that is uh, the mono, as in monosodium, Di, as in disodium, and tri, meaning three, refers to the additional carbon atoms attached to a sulfite molecule. It can be a single, double, or triple atomic chain, and this has significant effects on health. The longer the molecule uh, chain, the more difficult it is for enzymes to break down the sodium into a usable form. And I'm simply reiterating what Rachel is saying, and that is Please read ingredient labels and be wary of ingredients you do not recognize, which we have stated in previous episodes. I think a lot of people may not realize that sodium sometimes appears as an ingredient in over-the-counter prescription drugs also. I don't want to alarm people by stating this, but the the issue is that adding salt to certain medications makes the bioavailability of the subject components more readily accessed by your body. Potassium actually works slightly better, but uh, sodium is a lot less expensive, which is why it's used by the medical industry. Salt is also important to help muscles contract and relax and to maintain the balance of water and minerals. And this is the osmotic regulation I was referring to as we opened our show. So, in thinking about how we can safely use salt as an addition to our food and avoid hypernatremia, and let's face it, almost everybody likes a bit of salt in their foods. Let me just point out that excess salt in our bloodstream can be avoided most easily by avoiding highly processed and packaged food, fast food, ham, bacon, mass produced bread, energy drinks high in electrolytes, pizza, and snack food. This, uh, this is a, this last one, the snack foods is a big one. Uh, please skip the potato chips. Anyway, this list could go on and on. Hypernatremia is the state of too much salt in your system and can lead to high fever, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, extreme thirst, confusion, kidney failure, and seizures. Most people who are trying to cut down on salt intake immediately move to simply not adding salt to their food, but adding salt to the food at the dinner table, which only accounts for 11% of total salt ingestion. The vast majority of consumed salt can be found in the highly processed manufactured foods I just described. And did you notice what was missing from that list? Fresh produce. It really is the best way to avoid high sodium levels in your body.
1: I love these points, Jerome. A lot of my clients are struggling to reduce their sodium intake, and the first line of defense always seems to be cooking without salt. But I don't believe that's the problem. And to your point, um, 11% is, is really, really low. So the first line of defense against too much sodium has to be reduction in highly processed food, chips, cookies, deli meats, fast foods, et cetera. If you eat a whole food diet and salt your food moderately, it just won't be a problem for you. I'd like to point out something here for any of our listeners on a low-carb or paleo-type diet. Low-carb diets are diuretic in nature, meaning the kidneys excrete electrolytes at a higher rate. This is normal and not something to be worried about, but it is important to replace these electrolytes. So if you fall into either of those categories, you might find your salt needs a little bit higher than the average person.
0: Yeah, really good points, Rachel. And we will definitely talk about Uh, electrolytes, uh, especially for our endurance athletes and intense physical workouts. But I do want to talk a bit about uh, hyponatremia as opposed to hypernatremia. Uh, This is the function of not enough sodium in the body, as you mentioned, Rachel. So hyponatremia Occurs most often with elderly people on high doses of certain medications, a mostly liquid or pureed food diet and other factors. There have been a few cases of extreme athletes, distant runners, military personnel, and even modern athletes who sweat excessively and then suffer from hyponatremia. Overhydrating either before or during an intense workout is usually the culprit. In a case of overhydrating, particularly with water that contains no electrolytes, means the kidney simply cannot excrete the excess water, and this can lead to nausea, vomiting, mental confusion, loss of energy, and possibly seizures, coma, and in rare cases, even death. Uh, This area of research and understanding of the effects of insufficient sodium is fairly new and only started coming to light in the 1990s. It was the 1995 case, for example, of nine Marine recruits at Paris Island falling gravely ill after drinking between 10 and 22 quarts of water within a few hours of training. That's a lot. On the athletic side, however, there was the documented and studied case of 26 runners in the 1998-1999 San Diego Marathon developing hyponatremia. The problem became more complicated because urine production drops by 20 to 60% due to a drop in blood flow to the kidneys. There are many other examples, and though it's rare, it does happen. This just goes to show that too little sodium can be dangerous. However, it is much harder to achieve, and it is a lot easier to uh, treat as an emergency Mm -hmm. than overconsumption of sodium.
1: And anyone listening who feels worried about what Jerome just talked about, especially if you are an endurance athlete, just make sure that you're fueling your workouts with electrolytes as well as plain water. Uh, It's a pretty easy solution. I can speak from a bit of personal experience. Last summer, I was exercising a lot outside and exercising a lot in general. I was struggling with some super low blood pressure, dizziness while working out, fatigue, muscle cramps, a little bit of nausea. And I did a little bit of research and decided to add an electrolyte powder to my water while exercising. It has not just sodium, but also potassium and a few other beneficial minerals. And it was life-changing for my workouts.
0: Wow, Rachel, I didn't know that, but um, it sounds like you definitely came up with the right solution. So on electrolytes and uh, hydration, it is important to stay hydrated, whether it is during a workout or not. I always advise people to drink when you're thirsty and stop when you're not thirsty, but certainly keep up on the electrolytes uh, is an important uh, effect.
1: I don't want to get too far off topic here, but quickly, I'd like to mention how important that last point is that Jerome made. Uh, Drink when you're thirsty and stop when you're not. I hear way too many people say that they're trying to drink some insane amount of water as a health goal. And it's not only a waste of energy, but it's also potentially dangerous based on some of what we've already discussed. I'd love to circle back to an earlier point I made about low-carb diets, being naturally diuretic. To all those out there who are freaked out about sodium levels, my advice, not being a doctor or medical professional, of course, is eat more veggies and fruits. From what I've seen uh, with clients, people want to overcomplicate things because there's so much information out there, but to be honest, you don't need some crazy zero salt diet. You probably don't need medication. And again, I'm not a doctor. You probably need more fresh vegetables, less processed fake food. Try that honestly for 30 days before you take an extreme step, like removing all salt from all the food that you eat. Uh, not to mention yuck.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you, Yuck. Uh, Earlier, Rachel, you mentioned when things go wrong with high sodium intake, and you gave two great examples, increased blood pressure and a high risk of heart disease or stroke. So to your point, the National Institutes of Health have said that even a modest reduction in sodium intake, assuming you're in that more than five grams per day you mentioned, Rachel, can make a difference in as little as four weeks, which is amazing and cutting out the salty snacks and processed foods for a month can be just about enough to bring sodium levels back to normal. Please, listeners, keep in mind that this is not a linear path to lowering high blood pressure, but must be taken into the context of overall health. Prescription and over-the-counter meds and hereditary factors all play a part in this. So what recommendations can we offer as healthier alternatives to chips and dips? Well, I have one. Stop eating chips and dips. Rachel, what do you think?
1: veggies and dip honestly guys replace your chips pretzels popcorn with some veggie slices make some homemade dips so you can control the added salt and enjoy and I'm sure Jerome can speak to making some of these things at home homemade kale chips homemade french fries is one of my go-to I know I do a lot of that and I enjoy it so much more than the store-bought stuff
0: Yeah, I like your recommendations, Rachel. Uh, As far as uh, my recommendations on what things can be made at home, sign up for my classes. But uh, my culinary advice for this podcast is that to definitely prepare your own meals. And unfortunately uh, in this podcast, we will not have time for uh, full recipes, but here are a few tips. Switch from popular commercial peanut butters to organic natural peanut butter. If you enjoy peanut butter, if you like butter Switch to unsalted butter and get rid of finely ground table salt. This is a biggie for me. Switch to a coarse grind sea salt. You will definitely find yourself using less of it on your dinner plate. And lastly, I would say, please stop buying deli meats. Can't stress this enough. There are, these are some of the highest salted foods that you uh, may be consuming on a weight to weight ratio versus salted snacks it is very likely that you may be consuming four to six times more sodium with deli meats than the Cheetos you had for breakfast. Rachel, that's all I have, unless you have anything.
1: I love your recommendations for the food swaps. I think that's the best place for people to start before, again, they go to extremes. Just one little note that I wanna make, any of our listeners who do have high blood pressure, and if you're on medication to control that, If you are thinking about a dietary change, you need to talk to your doctor. With a dietary change, like we're discussing, even swapping some of those store-bought options for more fresh foods and produces, uh, it will affect your blood pressure in a good way. Um, Meaning if you're on medications, your doctors will need to monitor you and adjust them. Uh, The last thing you want to end up with is super low blood pressure. So, just make sure that you're communicating with your doctor. Dietary changes, like we've laid out, can be incredibly beneficial. But anytime you're taking medication, you must have a discussion with your doctor.
0: Excellent point. Folks, that does bring us to the end of our show today. And we would like to thank you for listening to this episode of Modern Food Thinking with Jerome Picker and Rachel Lucas, owner of Fueling Strong and edited by Jeremy Nessel. Our next episode will air in two weeks. Please join us then. You can listen to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, through the free app for iOS and Android or wherever you get your podcasts. To sign up for Rachel's private coaching sessions, visit her website at fueling-strong.com. To sign up for private group or general cooking classes with me, visit chef-jerome.com. This is Jerome Picca. And this is Rachel Lucas. From both of us, we hope you stay well, eat well, and be well.